0: Pastor Mike for the opportunity. Pastor, I think he probably already mentioned to you, he's in our Start Here class today. He's finishing up that class with our uh, prospective new members and uh, thankful uh, for him and and for the opportunity to speak this morning. Uh, This morning as we get going, uh, today is a really uh, quite a special day. Uh, Today marks the the start of our next growth group cycle and so our growth groups are going to resume meeting. They're going to be uh, starting new studies And in addition to that, we're also having baby dedication service and at the 11 a.m. service. And so, really, an exciting day uh, in the life of Shelby—a day that really helps uh, talk about the importance of discipleship, discipleship all the way from our little infants all the way up to our seasoned saints. That uh, our church wants to be about investing intentionally into the life of the people here. And so, growth groups is a key way for you if you want to build relationships and grow in your walk with the Lord. Join a growth group. And obviously, our hope is to come around our families as they dedicate their children and to walk with them through the process of discipleship. You know, I'm very thankful for Shelby Bible Church. I'm thankful for the saints that are gathered here. Uh, I know for me, I've been here five and a half years, and just thankful for the attention and the love this church gives to children. And specifically, the focus that we have on families and, and helping support the families that are here as they work to raise their kids to love the Lord. and know for Naomi and I, we have our, our son Braden here, and he is loved and he is cared for. And uh, we're excited that we have uh, another son on the way, and we know that you're going to love them as well. And just thankful, so just very thankful for the leaders and for the volunteers and for the effort that is put into the children here. You know, the call of discipleship is a sacred calling. Uh, it's, it is the most important job given to the believer on earth. And ministry is not just for the paid staff member. Ministry is the act of service for God on the behalf of others. And as we minister, as specifically as parents minister, their calling is unique because God has placed these children in their home that they might not just hear what their parents say, but see how they live. And what we find with discipleship is discipleship cannot just be intellectual. It must be accompanied with a life that lives it out. And so as we look at discipleship, we know that it is our role as believers, as we come together as a church, to support families as they endeavor to not only know what is true, but to live out what is true. And so once we, the the thing we know about discipleship too is that it never ends. The process of discipleship, you and I never graduate. There's never a time when you are done being a disciple. A disciple is simply someone who follows or a teacher, or as an apprentice of someone. And in our case, we are all apprentices of Christ. And even as you become more uh, familiar with what it means to be a disciple, and maybe you become capable in teaching, your job is not done because now your job is to now help instill that into someone else and help them join that process of discipleship. The goal of the church is to make disciples of Jesus. And as we look at our, our church, our desire, and every facet of ministry we have, whether it's children's ministry, our nursery, growth groups, women's ministry, men's ministry, student ministry, anything and everything else that's going on here, our heart is that people would be growing in a relationship with Christ. And this happens through relationships. We were designed to grow in community with God and others. Uh, today, we'll be looking at the process of discipleship that went on in the life of a young pastor named Timothy. And as we look at his life, we're going to find three things uh, that that we need to hone in on and focus on if we want to not only make disciples of our children, but make disciples of our coworkers and those we come in contact with. And the thing I just want to really make clear this morning is though we're celebrating baby dedication and though we are launching growth groups, the message this morning, the call of discipleship is not just for growth group leaders. It is not just for parents. It is for every single person who calls Jesus Lord. We are all called to make disciples. And so the three things I hope to cover this morning uh, with clarity are these. Making disciples is primarily relational. Making disciples is primarily relational. Secondly, discipleship is modeled through a godly life. And then thirdly, the disciple matures through the word of God. You know, I think of discipleship and I think of the importance of imitation, uh, you think of any, any form of learning, and if you only focus on intellectual understanding, you fall short. Because accompanied with intellectual knowledge, there needs to be an opportunity to walk that out. Uh, when Naomi and I first bought our home, I think this is now going back three, four years ago. Uh, there, as you know, there are many things in a home when you, want, when you move in, you want to make your own. And so there's projects that you're working on. There's all kinds of things that need to get done. And one of the things that we needed to do was to replace all of our electrical outlets. This is something that I had never done, and I was not willing to poke at. So Pastor Mike came over, and he began to help work through what it means to change out an outlet. And he showed us the importance, first of all, of making sure the power's off, right? Make sure that power's off. He had a tester. You stick it in to test it. You disconnect the old wires, and then he showed me which wires go where, and you can even bend the copper wire so that when you screw it down, it's nice and snug. And after watching him do a few of those, then it was my turn. So then he kind of watched over me as I tried to do this and fumbled my way through it. After I did that a few times, then I was on my own, and I was starting to replace these outlet covers, and I did one time make the mistake, maybe you've made this mistake, that just because the lights are off in the room does not mean... The power to the outlet's off. So I got a little, little jolt. But through that process of imitating Pastor Mike, just recently I was able to pull new power to my garage. I put a new outlet in. and I put lights on the exterior. And the reason I was able to do that was because Pastor Mike didn't simply give me a list of instructions and say, read this and learn. It's because he walked with me as I was learning the information. Anywhere you look in life, being able to imitate someone is critical. You think about people who want to be a teacher, They go through schooling, and then they have to have a a period of time where there's training or they're doing it in the field. You think about a police officer. They go through the academy, and then for a year, they're on probation until they complete their training. You think about a doctor, right? Four years of school, and then another five, Nick? On the job, people are with you, helping you walk through it. And so in every area of life, when we learn something, it cannot purely be intellectual. It must be accompanied with life on life. And so as we think about discipleship this morning, the first thing I want to start with is that making disciples is primarily relational. So if you will, please turn with me to 2 Timothy, and we're going to start in chapter 1, verse 1. 2 Timothy, chapter 1, verse 1. And as you're turning there, I think it would be wise if we took a few moments to uh, call out to the Lord to give us wisdom as we study. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning, and thank you... So much that you brought us here so that we can gather, to be able to sing songs to magnify your name. And Lord, I pray as we open your word now that you would give us wisdom and insight. That your spirit would guide me and that he would minister in and through me. And Lord, that your people would be edified and that we would be mobilized to action. Lord, we love you and we pray that you would guide us now. And it's in the name of Jesus we ask and pray these things. Amen. So 2 Timothy chapter 1. Verses 1 through 7, I'm going to read. We're also going to be in chapter 3, so I figure I'm not going to have you stand this time, because I'm not going to have you stand the next time. Okay? So we'll just stay seated and enjoy that seat this morning. Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 1 through 7. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors. but of power and love and self-control. And so as we get ready to look into our text this morning, Paul starts this letter as he starts many of his epistles. He begins by describing that he is an apostle. He is a sent one from Jesus to proclaim a message to people, specifically in Paul's case, to Gentile people. And Paul opens this up explaining that he's an apostle and that it is by the will of God that this is the case. And then oftentimes what Paul does is he directs his letter to someone specific, in our case, Timothy. And he gives this phrase that's very interesting. He says, grace, mercy, and peace from God, the Father, and Christ Jesus our Lord. And, and what we know from this letter, to the, from 1 Timothy to this letter, is that he changes his address to Timothy. In, in the first book, he says, uh, my, my child in the faith. But in this letter, he says, my beloved child. And what this indicates is a deep sense of love and appreciation for Timothy. And and the reason we think for this is that a lot has changed in, in Paul's life since he wrote the first book. Paul is now in his second imprisonment in Rome, and this is the final letter that he's going to pen to the churches, and he knows that his death is pending. It's coming soon. And so as he's in this jail cell and he is alone, he is Here just thinking and he's praying, Timothy comes to mind, this beloved child. And as we continue in verse 3 and 4, this is what it says, I thank God who I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience. As I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day, as I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. It's interesting to me, why is it that Timothy causes Paul to feel joy? Paul is in a very, very poor situation. Uh, I find myself complaining about things that are far less of magnitude to what Paul has found himself in. And yet in the midst of his suffering, in the midst of his time in jail, in the midst of knowing that his ministry is coming to an end and that his life is about to end, Paul is focusing not on himself but on someone else. We see that he is thinking of Timothy. And as he thinks of Timothy, he's reminded of the tears of when they departed. And I I think what's important is he says that that he brought him joy. So why is it that he brought him joy? What we know from the ministry of Paul is that many people abandoned him throughout his ministry. We know that specifically in this letter, he mentions names of people who have left him, who have basically abandoned him in the work that he was doing. We know that throughout his letters, there are people who have harmed him and who have specifically tried to harm him in his person. And then thirdly, we know there are people who have left. They have forsaken the faith, which... To us would mean that they never were in the faith. But the reality is people have abandoned him. People have disappointed him. And then there's Timothy. And Timothy when he thinks of him. Fills him with joy. And, and why is that? And I, I believe the reason for this is seen in verse 5. It's that Timothy's faith is sincere. He has a sincere faith. And what does it mean to have a sincere faith? And so as we as we look at this. The word sincere is, is, is translated Transliterated the word hypocrite. But it has the opposite meaning. So what Paul is saying is that, Timothy, your faith is unhypocritical. You are not two-faced. You do not have hidden agendas. Who you say you are is who you live out to be. What you say you believe is what you have faithfully displayed in your life. And I think as we think about Paul and we think about him coming to the end of his life, we know that ministry, which is just basically serving God by serving people, we know that it is hard at times. And the reason for that is because, as Pastor Mike would say, ministry is primarily to a who, not a what. Which means when we're dealing with people, we're going to be dealing with the monotonous day-to-day things that happen. We're going to deal with great times of sorrow and grief. And then we're going to deal with times of great celebration and excitement. And Paul has gone through all of these ups and downs, and Timothy has remained faithful. Because his faith is sincere and so as i said sincere faith is that it's not two-faced it's free from hidden agendas timothy was not putting on an act he was not a poser he was truly someone who had believed on the person and work of jesus christ and it was displayed through how he lived now how do we know this we know that that he is a pastor in the city of ephesus ephesus is a it, it's extremely difficult place to be a christian let alone a leader and we know that people are opposing the message. We know that Timothy's referred to as someone who's timid, who uh, Paul is encouraging to be bold. And, and the reason for this is that the ungodly is growing in influence. The church in its ability to disciple and minister is being threatened. And what needs to happen is in the midst of difficulty, you need to be faithful. And we know that anytime someone goes through something difficult, what's really on the inside is going to come on out, isn't it? It's like those gushers that you get. My son, we just started eating gushers with him, and you bite down, and that, that juice, whatever that is, squeezes out. And, and whatever is on the inside, when pressure is applied, it's going to come out. And so we see here that he is reminded of his sincere faith, and I love that this, this phrase, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois. The idea of dwelling is the idea of making oneself at home. Uh, it's this idea that it has free course in one's life. There is a comfort, there is a just an ability to act as if this is where you belong, and that is what has happened with the faith of Timothy first by his grandmother. And what I think is very important, grandparents, today, is that your work is not done. God is not through with his work in you, that you have a very important part in the discipling of not only your children as they were coming up, but now in the lives of your grandchildren. That as you live a life that is faithful, as you live out a sincere faith that you actually are making an impact in the generation that follows you. Spurgeon says this, he says, train up a child in the way he should go, but be sure that you go that way as well. And so it's this idea that we can know what is true, we can know what we need to do, but we need to show it by how we live. And and we see that Timothy comes to a sincere faith first and foremost because his grandmother had a sincere faith. And as his grandmother allowed this sincere faith to be cultivated in her. She didn't stop there. She then began to disciple her child. And we know that her child comes to faith in Christ. And then as a result of her discipling her child, Timothy, he now has a faith that is sincere. And we all know this to be true, that when we see someone living what they preach, when we see someone living in a way that is consistent with what they say they believe, that is compelling It causes us to want to follow them specifically when they go through suffering, specifically when they go through difficulty. We know that Timothy's father was a, was a Gentile. It's very likely that he was not a believer. And so we know that there is difficulty in the life of this family, and yet there's faithfulness starting from grandma to mama, now to Timothy. And so what we need to understand is sincere faith is not merely intellectual but it is lived out and it is demonstrated in everyday life. Now, how does this happen where the faith of a grandma passes on to the faith of a mom that passes on to the faith of a son? And I think it's seen in Deuteronomy chapter 6. We know that, that Eunice and her mother were Jewish and that they very likely were familiar with the command in Deuteronomy 6, that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. And then in verse 7, it says, You shall teach them diligently to your children. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. And so, with discipleship being relational, we see that with parents, there's two things happening. One, there's teaching, right? There is an intentional instruction of what the Word of God says. But then it follows up with talking about it. So, teaching's important. Helping people come to an intellectual knowledge and understanding of what Scripture says is important. But he spends more time, this writer, on the talking, the going through the day-to-day life. When you're going to the market, make sure you're talking about who the Lord is. When you go to sit down for a delicious meal, make sure you're talking about who the Lord is. When you go down to sleep, when you rise up, basically every facet of life, it should be including talking about the Lord. And the mistake that we can make at times is to think that there needs to be a distinction between what we do in the church house and what we do outside of the church house. And the reality is discipleship is everything that we do in life. It's mowing the lawn. It's doing the dishes. It's how we deal with drivers on Hall Road. It's every part of our lives. And so what we must do is we must humbly admit that and understand that whatever's flowing out of here is going to speak louder than whatever I'm teaching intellectually. And so it cannot just stop with what we do with the mind, but it must be fleshed out in life. Uh, And so everything we do, especially as parents, like I said, is discipleship. And why is that? We're the temple of God. God has taken residence in us, meaning that the house of worship doesn't stay here, it goes with us. New Testament, we're told that we're ambassadors of Christ. Literally, we represent the kingdom of heaven everywhere we go because Christ lives in us through his spirit and, and what we know is that, that, that parenting is not only is not the purpose of, of, of a parent alone. Uh, Gary Thomas says this, parenting is not our purpose. It is a response to our purpose, worshiping and glorifying God. And this is true as an employee. Being an employee is not your purpose in life. Your purpose in life is to worship and glorify God, and you do that as an employee. And so as I worship God, as I bring him glory in my everyday life, it's going to point others to him James Baldwin says this about children, children have never been good at listening to their elders, but they have never failed to imitate them. So though children may have a hard time listening, they do not have a hard time imitating what they see. Our son Braden loves candles, absolutely loves candles. Uh, He has a little motorized car he drives around, and in the back of it, it's got like a little trunk, and there's a remote in there, there's a binky, there's some old goldfish, And then there's a candle, right? And he loves pulling that candle out. It's just a little tea light candle. And he'll pull that out and he'll give it a sniff. He'll give it a few sniffs. And then he puts it back on and puts it away. And why is it that a two-year-old would love a candle? And the reason my son loves candles is because he sees his mama day in and day out making candles. He sees his dad helping his mom pack those boxes full of candles. And so he sees what we love... And he loves it and imitates it himself. Another one, coffee. Anyone else like coffee? Anyone have a coffee this morning? I limited myself to two. My son loves coffee. So thankfully, he doesn't consume a lot of it. He gets like a little bit of a taste from the spoon. It's one of those tactics you use as a parent to get your kid to eat when they don't want to eat. You guys ever bribe your kids? It's one of those things we do, and uh, one day, he was around one years old, I left the room, I left my cup of coffee, it was in a cup and with a lid, I left it on the end table, and I just, just walked out to go do something really quick, it came back in, and my coffee cup was gone. Thankfully, it wasn't piping hot, I want to give that disclaimer, but I didn't know where it went, and then I picked up my son, and I felt how wet he was. So I lifted his shirt, and I saw that his white onesie was now brown, and what he had done I'm assuming, is he had picked it up and he had begun to try to consume this. I don't know how much he got, but he got a hold of our coffee. My son loves coffee. Why? Because that's what he sees in dad's hand all the time. He sees what dad loves, he imitates it, and he loves it himself. And so the question is, am I living a life that is worth imitating? And I ask myself this question often. Am I worth following? Because I don't know about you, but I want to be. I want God to do a work in my life. I want him to shape me and mold me into the image of his son so that when my son looks at me, he sees Jesus. That's what I want. And so when we think about our lives, what is it that our kids are imitating? What is it that they see? Let's move it beyond that. Some of you are grandparents, uncles, aunts. Some of you are friends of a family who have kids. You have influence, and what you love is what they're going to love, and they're going to emulate it. So our kids will naturally love and they will imitate what we love. So in order for genuine faith of a disciple maker to not merely be intellectual, but to be something that is lived out, here are a few things that came to mind. First is we have to admit mistakes. We cannot allow ourselves to think that our failures somehow can prohibit the gospel from working in our children's lives. Because the thing is, the gospel is not dependent on my ability to live perfectly before my son, but it is helped when I humbly admit that I need the gospel just as much as my son does. And so as parents, we admit when we've made mistakes. As a family of God, we admit when we have made mistakes. Secondly, humility towards others' mistakes. Boy, is this one fun. I'm real good at being okay with my mistake. Yeah, it wasn't that bad. But the moment someone else does something, I'm right on it. Like, what on rice? And so there's a humility when someone harms me, when someone makes a mistake, when my son doesn't do what I want him to do. There needs to be a humility to say, I want control, but control is not for me to have. God is the one to control. So I have humility towards others and integrity with how we live when no one else is around. We're going to talk about this in a few minutes, but there are teachers infiltrating the church who have an appearance of godliness. They're making it look like they love God, but they are totally posers. And so you and I have to battle daily to live lives of integrity to say my tendency is going to be to drift away from faithfulness. I have to call it for what it is, and I have to live in line with what I say I believe. And then lastly, devoted to spiritual rhythms, meaning worship. Not just through song, but taking time to acknowledge God. Worship. Time in the word. Time in prayer. These things are critical. If we want faith to be genuine in us and to be passed on to those near to us. So the first thing is discipleship is primarily relational. Secondly, discipleship is modeled through a godly life. It's modeled through a godly life. I'm going to read chapter 3, 1 through 13 quickly here. And what we're going to see is Paul is going to be describing the characteristics of the ungodly while also contrasting that with how he lived. Verse 1 of chapter 3, but understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. By the way, this is referring to what Timothy was going through then and there, but this has reference to any time between then and the rapture of Christ. So, we live in a time that is going to increase in difficulty. Verse 2, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, "...unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins, and then they lead them astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at knowledge of the truth." Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so those men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith, but they will not get very far for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all, the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So we're not going to cover all those verses, just to be clear. We're going to pick a few out. But as I was thinking about this, I thought about the cuckoo bird. The cuckoo bird, what it will do is it will find the nest of another bird, and it will lay its egg amongst the eggs of the other bird, and then it will leave. It'll dip out. And it will go, and then it will do it to someone else. But what happens with the egg that it lays is that egg will hatch, and that little, what do you call it, little bird? What's, what's the name for that? Little chick? That little bird will emerge, and what happens progressively is that bird will throw the other eggs out of the nest to the ground. Or they will suffer. And what happens is that other bird, that mother bird whose eggs were in there, now cares for the cuckoo bird's baby and raises that baby and brings it to strength. It brings it food. And then that baby, when it grows, leaves. And then it goes and does it again. And I think what's happening is very similar to the church in that there are false teachers. There are people who appear to be godly. They come in and they deceive as though that they have a heart for God and want to be with him. And what they do is they begin to infiltrate with their lifestyle and with their teaching. All the while, we can be unsuspecting. And what we must be careful of is that we do not allow the ungodly to influence us in a way that would take us apart from Christ. And what we see is that discipleship, once someone becomes a disciple of Christ, we cannot leave them alone. They must be given a model to follow. Paul basically says to Timothy... I'm that guy. Look at how I lived. I lived in a way that is faithful. Follow my aim. Follow my life. And what I want to show you is that the the list, there's 18 things Paul said about the ungodly. And I just want to summarize them with two two phrases. The first is that they're lovers of self. They love themselves. Unapologetically. They're self-focused. They want to reach an end that will satisfy them. They will use God. They will use the people of God. They will use ministry for what? Their own end. They will use people to get what they want. They're lovers of self, and then they're lovers of pleasure. Guthrie in the Tyndall New Testament commentary says this, Moral corruption follows from love misdirected. Love misdirected. Self-centeredness and material advantages when they become chief objects of affection destroy all moral values, and the list of vices given by Paul is the living out of that. So what are we saying? Look back to the Garden of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve are created perfect without sin. They fellowship with God on a daily basis. They're given everything they need. And there's nothing competing for their love and desire to make God first. But then what happens? The serpent comes and he deceives Eve. And what actually happens is for the first time, there's a competing value. And what they want is they want to satisfy the value of self. They want to satisfy what they need and what they want. And what happens is they sin. And sin always brings a break in relationship with God and others. And what has happened is that they have decided to put themselves before God. And so in this text, there's two things happening. There's willful deceit, right? So there's people who are willfully deceiving and disobeying, and that is these false teachers. It says that they have an appearance of godliness, meaning that they are hypocrites. They do look the part. They're very effective at acting religious. They're very effective at acting like they love God and that they're pious. But the word actually means that there is an outward shell with no substance. There is nothing of substance in them. Jesus tells us the way that we can determine if someone is with us or not is by their fruits. And so again, I point us to the relational necessity of discipleship. We need to walk life on life with people, not just give them information so that they can see how that information transforms a life. And so basically what's happened is they have denied the power. And what that means is that they have denied the gospel. They understand what it takes to get into the kingdom, but they have decided that their way of working is better. They don't want what Christ has to offer. The second group that it mentions is those who ignorantly oppose God. And what this group is described as is as people who have lived ungodly lives. They know it. They know they're broken. They want to fix it. And so they sat, they're satisfied with the first solution, the first idea, the first teaching that comes their way. And these false teachers are preying on the souls of people in order to gain riches. And so what we see, Paul basically says, here's the deal. Discipleship needs to be relational. And he appeals to Timothy first to think about his grandma and his mom, think about the sincerity of their faith, and then think about how I carried myself. And I know we don't have time, but he contrasts the way he lives to the false teachers. And so discipleship, first and foremost, has got to be relational. It cannot just be intellectual. Secondly, a disciple of Jesus needs to see this modeled before them. And then lastly is this, uh, a disciple matures through the word of God. When we were talking about this on Thursday morning as the pastors, we were talking about the importance of getting back to the basics. When you think about basketball, uh, a lot of times a, an athlete will find themselves in a slump, right? They're not playing well. They're not making shots. They're getting frustrated And so what is the best thing a basketball player can do to get out of that slump? Go back to the basics. Make a layup. Get a steal. Get a rebound. Just do something simple. Take the next step and then allow the game to follow. Allow it to follow with you. Tim Graw, one of our former deacons over here when I first got here, told me that as you work here and as you go through your life here, do not forget the fundamentals. Spend your time in the scriptures spend time in prayer. Don't allow the work of ministry to crowd out your Relationship with the lord and the reality is when we find ourselves in a rut when we find ourselves in difficulty What must we do just go back to the basics? Remember that the salvation that is yours. It was afforded to you by the merit of christ not anything you've done And so the basic is to remember that to go back to that So paul calls timothy to remember and he appeals to him in two ways first first Remember who you learned it from. And again, we see that discipleship is effective when it is lived out in the life of people close to the disciple. That, that when Paul is calling Timothy to think back on it, to remember what he was called to and what he, what he came from, it's to think about your grandma, think about your mom, and think about how I lived. This morning, the call of Paul on all of us, and he says it here in verse 14, but as for you, continue what you learned and I firmly believe knowing from whom you've learned it. Every single person in this room has the ability to obey this call. Whether you grew up in junior church, in Awana, and you went to church your whole life, today, the call in your life is to still continue. Don't drift. Don't stop. Continue. Maybe you've been away from church for a time, and maybe you've just now started coming back into it, and you're giving it a shot. The the, the message to you today is that all you must do is continue, press forward. Maybe you have sin in your life that is besetting and that you're having a hard time shaking it. And and the call of Paul in our life right now is to remember what you believed in. Believe in the gospel and I'll take the steps forward. Continue in it. And so the scriptures unveil and point us to a God and to a means that he has provided for the forgiveness of sins. And we just must simply remember that and go back to that. So in any situation we find ourselves, we can be encouraged by simply remembering that the gospel, the good news that my sins have been forgiven because of Christ's finished work, That is all I need in order to progress and step forward. All scripture, it says in verse 16 and 17, and this is the point where a believer who becomes a disciple, not only do they need to understand the basics, they need to see it lived out, and then they need to take the steps to invest in their walk going forward. And we do this through the word of God. He says in verse 15, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. The word childhood literally means infant. So from... Very early on in the life of Timothy, he has been acquainted with. The the scriptures have been read to him. The scriptures have been shared with him. Likely, the scriptures have been sung to him. And so this is an encouragement to us that there is not enough scripture that we can give to our kids. We need to pour it into them through music, pour it into them through the videos they watch, pour it into them by reading it to them, and just allow the scriptures to be a part of their lives. Pastor Mike made this point. That, at least, you know, to those of you maybe who grew up in the church, when was the first time you heard John 3.16? And the reality is, for most of us, you probably don't remember the first time you heard that verse. And the reason for that is because you were acquainted with it from a very young age. And so Paul is saying, you were acquainted with these things, and then he takes a few moments to help us understand that Scripture is profitable. It enables us to live a life that is honoring to God. And so Paul is saying, look, I need you when you face difficulty, when you're facing these false teachers, when you're facing people who are struggling, first and foremost, remember how you came to know who Christ was, who lived them out before you, and then go back to the scriptures. The scriptures do four things we see, that they give us teaching, reproof, correction, and training. The teaching is just simply instruction what is right. What are we supposed to be doing? The scripture teaches us that. The scripture also rebukes. It teaches us what we're doing is wrong. It calls it out. And again, in a culture that we live in where there's no such thing as objective truth, we must stand on what the scripture says. The scripture divides, as Pastor Mike said a few weeks ago. When we take a stand on what scripture says, it is going to put us into opposition with the world that we live in. That's why Paul said a few verses earlier, if you want to live a godly life, you're going to suffer. Because when you take a stand and when you your, your, your confidence in scripture is going to divide. So it tells us what's wrong, what's right. It teaches us, it corrects us, and helps us to get back into alignment. It helps us understand how am I supposed to live, and then lastly, it trains us in righteousness. So it helps us to walk in a way that is honoring to the Lord. And so, bringing this to a close, making disciples in our families, with our friends, in our workplaces, making disciples is primarily relational. Discipleship is modeled through a godly life, and a disciple matures through the word of god i think of the song sanctuary lord prepare me to be a sanctuary pure and holy tried and true Uh uh-oh with thanksgiving i'll be a living sanctuary thank you ginger i'm going to just have you do that next time but let that be the prayer of our souls that we would be a living sanctuary that we would be a people who not only know what we believe but that it's fleshed out let me pray with us and uh We'll go ahead and uh, are we gonna have, we're going to have a song, right, brother? Awesome. Let's go ahead and stand and let's pray as we bring service to a close this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning, and we thank you again that we can gather here. And Lord, as we uh, bring our service to a close, we pray that you would help us as we go from here. Lord, help us to be a people who grow in our knowledge and our love for you through your word, and then that you would give us the power by your spirit to live that. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity we have to, to celebrate the children who are being dedicated today. And Lord, as we launch our growth groups, we pray that you would use these groups as a means of helping people grow in their walk with you. And Lord, that you would be magnified in our presence. And we ask and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.